0: Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash weeks You know that we've been kind of in a series and this series is kind of titled intention of creation. Now many of us are like, okay, well what does that mean? Because really if you look at the Bible, you see that there's intended creation, there's there's intended purpose in Genesis. And then there's fallen man. And then what happens is, is there's God like trying to kind of get it back on track, but man like still just messing it up all the time until finally a new covenant is written out. Blood is absolved of the of the former covenant's parties by Jesus. And this new covenant gives us an, a new intention in our creative purpose in man. See, for a lot of us, maybe we didn't realize, right? In Genesis, we were, we were made to oversee and practice dominion over the earth. But sin obstructed that design. And now, through, the, through Jesus, what we have is we have new intended purpose to walk with him in the midst... Of our lives. So, what we've been doing is kind of every week, and last week we kind of talked about some covenants and kind of talked about just different um, understanding of what creation was. And this week I kind of want to propose a, a statement that we're going to kind of add context around this entire morning. And this statement is ruling or riches, right? ruling or riches and really the idea is to dissect the rich young ruler but I don't want to sit here and I want to say this just right from the onset is that this is not a sermon about making money and how bad it is it's not that this is from the pretense of us understanding that the desire of the riches of this world should never usurp the desire of for us to rule and reign with God within our world. And how a lot of the times what happens is is we've misplaced the treasure of God with the pursuit of the earthly treasures of man. And so I wanted to kind of tell you guys actually a little bit of my story, but before I do, I think a lot of you don't realize that actually this intended creative purpose is 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 something that's referenced all throughout all throughout scripture to rule and to reign and to be with God. Second Timothy actually has one of my favorite verses in all the scripture and I just want to read a few Second Timothy 10 through verse 13 I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him we will live with him. If we endure we will also reign. If we deny him, he will also deny us. My, one of my favorite, if not favorite, verses in all the Bible, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other translations, it says, though we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Isn't that a calming reality, that even in the midst of our fight to stay faithful... He still remains faithful because he cannot deny the love that he has for you. But more than anything, like I said, is Old and New Testament, we have this understanding that we are not just called to walk with God, but we have the power to reign with authority spiritually over all things that the name and the power of that name gives us authority. And what's interesting is, and and I referenced this in the first service. See, imagine right now, if I walked up to you and I said, hey, I've got Jeff Bezos' credit card. How many of y'all are like, okay, where's the nearest Ferrari dealer, yacht dealer? Like, I'm going to buy 27 houses. (laughs) I'm buying 14 skyscrapers, tallest ones. Because this is, what I, this is what I think you don't understand is covenant in the Old Testament term was actually, it was, it was so sacred that to say you were in covenant with a name extended everything of that name to you. So when we say in the name of Jesus, what we're really saying is in the early church world, when they said we believe in the power in Jesus, we follow the way of Jesus. What they're saying is we profess and practice the same power that rose him from death. We profess and practice the same power that opens blind eyes, heals deaf ears. See, this is what they're saying is just as the power of Jeff Bezos' credit card opens up doors we never thought we could have in the Old Testament and New Testament covenant, that was the reverence that which we assert Jesus' name. But isn't it interesting that as the years, the decades... And now the millennia has worn on. The name of Jesus, I think, is not something we profess as an all-encompassing power above all situation, circumstance, and earthly domain. It's just something that we sing about on Sundays. And when it's tough, we pray about on Mondays. But do we understand the gravity of what the name possesses. And what I want to introduce to you today is this idea that treasure, not just in heaven, but treasure that can only be found in him, is better than any treasure this world could ever give us. When I was 18, I was graduating high school, and uh, about halfway through my senior year, my parents sat me down, and they said, hey man, what are you doing with your life? And I said, well, obviously I'm going to play football at Notre Dame, and I'm going to play first-round draft pick of the Packers. And my parents, really nice, I'm 145 pounds, had gotten spares playing time f- for a few years, was a very mediocre athlete, looked at me and said, "Well, that's, that's great, but like, what are you... <laughs> What are you really doing? Which I like, you know, I'm not going to lie. As somebody who worked in youth ministry, I'm 31 now. As somebody who worked in youth ministry, I wish there were more parents who would have sat their kids down and been like, hey, like, no, but really, what's the plan? So it's like, I come from a small town. I can say it because they're probably not going to listen. But I can't tell you how many kids in a town of like 12,000 were like, yeah, I don't know. Next MJ. You're like, no, you're not. You're, you are not. <laughs> like, Please get that out of your head. It's like the parents are like, they come to you and they're like, no, he really, really is. <laughs> like, okay, well, I will, pr- I will pray for both of you. Anyway, some people in here are still holding on to that reality, playing intramurals every week. Like, man, I just put up 27. Dude, if you seen me at intramural soccer? I scored two goals and slide tackled a chick. Um, but anyway, literally, I remember growing up, I'm like talking to my parents. My parents are like, yeah, no, you're not going to make it to the pros. And I'm like, okay. So at that time, there was just this pipeline had formed into doing missions. So 18, I decide to go off. And more power to all the people who knew what they were going to do after college. It took me a few years or decades. It's what happens when you graduate and have the maturity level of a seven-year-old hamster. Uh, but, but I remember my mom is like, they want me to do go do this missions thing. So that's what we did. Actually, Javen, who's in the front row, literally did it with me. And I remember I moved to Florida. I do three months in Florida. And then I spend three months overseas in India. Now, I've never been the guy who's really good at sitting in a classroom. So for me, three months of training meant texting my friends back and forth rap battles. Some of y'all are like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, if you want to go, me and you afterwards, head to head. Like that was right when the Eminem recovery album had came out. Don't listen to it, but it was fire. But don't listen. <laughs> so I'm like sitting there and like didn't get anything really out of... My lecture phase is what they call it. But I'm going to tell you this. Living three months in India completely changed every way that I perceived how I was going to live. And really, it actually comes from this place. You know, there's a quick stat for you to understand. I'm just going to paraphrase it. And it's, uh, they, it actually is a stat. It says a net worth of 93170 U.S. dollars Net worth, that's not annual income, net worth is enough to make you richer than 90% of the people in the entire world. Just a net worth of $93,000. Now, let me take this a step further because some of us, right, we're like, okay, well, $93,000 is a lot. Well, let me give you another aspect. Here's another stat. You need significantly less to be among the global 50%, the top 50% of people in the world. You need just $4,210 to your name to be in the top 50% of the wealthy people in this world. So what happens is, is I I remember I come home from YWAM and immediately what I do is I, I get a job and What's interesting about my story, and and, and especially me and my wife's story, even with planting this church, is we've always had incredible favor from the Lord. As we've put him first, the Lord has always met our needs. And I remember when I was, I came back, I'm 19, I got a part-time job selling supplements at a GNC. Now, when you're 145 pounds and 19 years old and you're selling protein powder, it's not necessarily like the golden brick road, right? (laughs) However, my story is different. It was. Within six months, I'd had such favor that I got promoted to being a manager. And within being promoted to being a manager, within a month, one of the worst stores in Michigan was the top store in Michigan. And I remember going through that. Now, what's interesting is it wasn't all easy. Literally, my first day as a manager, 19 years old, literally fire everyone. Okay, pause. I've worked there six months. Who do you think I'd worked with? Everybody I was firing. It's like, hey, man, like, hey, dude, stoked for the shift today. Happy you took over. Yeah, you won't be here. (laughs) It's like, who fires, who tells a 19-year-old to fire all their friends? Anyway. But I remember, I, 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 it became like this, wow, this is incredible, and I'm living at my parents' house, and like, I don't know if any of you guys have a friend like this, where like every time you go out, you just assume they're paying for it because they're doing well enough. <laughs> or if people, anybody want to receive that friend, just put your hand up, I'll pray for you. <laughs> Nobody wants a friend. i like, just kidding. <laughs> David in the bag, let's go, bro. I'll be that friend for you. Not for everybody else, just for David. <laughs> but I remember... After about a year of working there, one day a guy comes in. And this is, like I said, I've always had just weird favor. A guy comes in who owns four car dealerships. And he says, hey, I want to give you a job. And I said, well, I don't really want a job. I love the job I work. And he's like, well, I want to give you a job. I want to hire you to run the internet sales for four car dealerships. I'm 19 years old, and he said, I'll double whatever you're making here. I'll give you benefits. Whatever time off you want for church, whatever it is, just come work for me, and I'll guarantee it for a year. So what happens? I took the job. How long do you think I made it? About four months. <laughs> Why? Because used car sales is pretty cringy. <laughs> Halfway through, though, I'm feeling this sense of, as I'm accumulating these treasures, living at my parents' house, bought a new car, all this stuff. I'm feeling this pull to, like, God, what do you want me to do? And I felt like the Lord was highlighting ministry, but 19 years old, making a bunch of money, I'm like, dude, why would I? Over time, I remember I called my dad, who's a pastor, who was the pastor at the church. I said, hey, what would it look like if I started in ministry? And he said, well, I can pay you $150 for three days a week of work which if you do the math, is about $4 an hour. And you can start a college ministry in a town that has 12000 with one college that has 800 students. We'll hire you for that. And that was my first job. You know, what's funny, though, is when I quit my job at the car dealership, I went from making great money to making barely $1,000 a month working three jobs. Moved out of my parents' house with trash bags and a for-sale sign on my car. Into a house, Javen was there with 11 dudes in one bathroom. Do not recommend it. I mean, this was like a hostel before those things were cool. But I'll tell you this. As I look back on my life, the fulfillment... Of being obedient Not to say I don't want money or treasure But to say God I don't factor that into my obedience If you ask me to do something I know I'm supposed to do And this is where we're starting with treasure today Is not that treasure is bad But treasure Comes at the feet of Jesus Not above him So what I want to do, some of you guys are like, are you going to ever read the Bible? Thank you for asking. The entire next 25 minutes is all Bible. Don't worry. I want to talk about rich young ruler and really I want to talk about it through the lens of not just Luke 18, because if you know anything about the rich young ruler, it's actually found in multiple um, different gospels, but mainly the context of Luke 18 through the, the understanding of what happens directly after it. Because a lot of us, what happens is we take the rich young ruler out and we unpack the content of the passage and we don't actually transpose it onto what happens directly after it, realizing that that is what gives it its accurate interpretation. So Luke 18, let's read. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commands. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasures in heaven and come follow me. But when he'd heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Today, I want you to know that you can have treasure on earth and still have treasure in heaven the problem is when you know and he knows that the treasure you seek is not truly him and that's the pretense of all of this passage this is the understanding that jesus is attacking is this idea that somebody wanted to experience the kingdom of god but through the lens of carnal existence And more than that, I'm gonna unpack today just a few principles revolving around this phrase, okay? And the phrase is this How to make sure you have chosen the right riches. How do you make sure that you've chosen the right riches? Because, in my opinion, if you wanna live out the intended purpose of creation, you have to understand that you will have to have a choice. Are you going to pursue everything the world tells you to pursue? Or are you going to seek first the kingdom and righteousness and trust that all things can be added? So the first thing is this, right? Success will never make you an exception and status will never cancel out wholeheartedness. I want you to focus on something and it's mainly in the exact text. It says this. In verse 20, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Most people miss this, what's going on right now. The man stands up, asks Jesus, how do I get into the heaven, how do I have everlasting life? Jesus lists these things, but the problem is, is he doesn't list them in order, and scholars actually believe this. This is how nitty-gritty we're going to go today. Jesus lists all of them in order, but one. The last one, honor your father and lo- mother, is actually listed out of Mosaic sequence. And it's something that should be at the very front. Honor your father and mother. Don't, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. That would be the correct order. Why would Jesus who's speaking to a predominantly Jewish crowd, speaking to a man of Jewish upbringing and tradition, who follows the law, lists the Ten Commandments out of order. In that day and time, that would be like, that's everybody knows the order of the Ten Commandments. Why would he do that? What if he's discerned within this man, and this is what scholars believe, he lists these out of order because this man has a not good relationship and hasn't honored his parents. Think about that. Jesus says, keep the commands and list them. But takes one out of order. Puts it at the tail end. And everybody in the crowd, this is what you have to realize. He's looking at the crowd, speaking, saying, do these things. And as he lists the Ten Commandments, everybody of Jewish upbringing would be looking and saying, why did he put that one at the end? Honor your father and mother. Why is that one at the... That should be at the... And then they're probably looking at the rich young ruler and going, the ones who know him, oh he, oh, he does have a rough relationship with his parents. He hasn't kept the full law. You know what's even more fascinating the, than this? Is that, in that if you think about it, how often do we as humans think that success or status cancels out obedience? Well, I've had favor, so I don't need it. Well, I've been blessed, so I don't have to. Well, good is coming about, so I don't need to be aware of the bad that will poison the good. What if I told you today that the enemy wants you to believe that success and status cancels out wholeheartedness so that he can get you out of following God? What if I would even tell you this today is that in all honesty, I'm not seeking successor status at all. If you followed our church from the beginning, you know that that is not what we've ever been built on. And it's mainly because, in my opinion, what we've seen in the the context of the modern-day church today is those who've sought those things, the Lord has separated like the wheat and the chaff. You're either going to be pure and wholehearted, Where you can have the success and status for a time period But I'm going to have you be wholehearted And if I've got to remove the success and status To point you back to wholeheartedness I will So the second thing is this, right? So success will never make you an exception And status will never cancel out your wholeheartedness Never get that confused Because I'm telling you if you do Success won't last long And status will not remain the second thing is this, his title in your life will do more than your bank account ever could. His title in your life will do more than, listen to this, this is what's fascinating to me. This is what I'm trying to point out about the context of Luke 18. Luke 18 chapter, or th- er, Luke 18 verse 38 through 41, directly after this passage, there is a story of a man by the name of blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. No sight who gets healed. What's interesting about the story is three terms that he utters. You know what those terms are? He's sitting by the road, Luke 18, 38 through 41, and he yells out, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd tries to hush him. Yells it again, son of David, have mercy on me. Crowd tries to hush him. Jesus hears it, walks up to him, and he says, Lord, would you heal me? What do you think happens? He's healed. Son of David an Old Testament messianic title in which yelled out and projected is essentially saying, Jesus, the Messiah, have mercy on me. People are hushing him because the, probably the ones hushing are the ones who don't believe he's actually the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, son of David. Jesus, the Messiah, have mercy on me. Lord, heal me. What happens? The title... Transmits the power Listen to this Good teacher What do I do to get everlasting life? Jesus didn't even have to answer the question Because he already knew where he stood in the man's heart I'm not the Messiah I'm not that son of David I'm not Lord I'm just a good teacher I had a lot of good teachers I had one good teacher my, my senior year. They don't influence everything that I do and all of who I am. See, isn't it interesting how the title changes the perception? One person yelling out the Messiah, the other yelling out, oh, good teacher. If you look at this, you know that this is just a common title that would be reserved to almost meeting a rabbi out in the marketplace. Hey, good teacher. Jesus is not here to be a good teacher for you. He's here to be Lord. He's here to be Messiah. He's here to be all or nothing. He's here to be everything. And if he's just a good teacher for you, he won't be for long. You know, there's a passage of scripture that I've always loved because of the imagery in the Old Testament. The imagery is this, listen to this, this is fascinating to me. And I was going to preach on it, but now I'm just going to paraphrase it, and I can't preach on it, it's fine. Or I'll do it in three years. Um, Philistines, Old Testament nemesis of God's people. They're fighting the Israelites, and in fighting the Israelites, they capture the Ark of the Covenant. The most holiest artifact ever known to man. The Ark of the Covenant, the symbolism, if you even touched it with sin in your life, you could die on the spot. Philistines capture it. Why? Because there's disobedience. Why? Because the people are not being wholehearted. And so what happens is is it falls into enemies' hands. The Philistines take it into their holiest place, the Temple of Dagon. And set it in the temple. There's an idol, idol worship right in front of it. Ark of the Covenant right next to it. They show up the next day. Hands are cut off of the idol. The idol is prostrated before the Ark of the Covenant. They don't get the hint. Pick the idol up, put it back on, the, on, on its place in the temple. Keep the Ark of the Covenant there. The next day they come back. Hands are cut off. Head is cut off. Idols on the ground. And they realize, oh, we can't have the resting place of God be in the presence of idols because it will confront it and dismember it man a lot of us we've wanted the presence of God with the presence of idols in our life and we get mad at him when he confronts it and dismembers it And I want to challenge you within that reality today is don't say King of Kings and Lord of Lords if you're not willing to take inventory of the things that have been placed in the spot where only the Holy of Holies should be. The third thing is this. His most personal challenges to you come from His love for you. And your intended purpose and placement with him. Mark's gospel has better wording, in my opinion, than Luke's on this one verse. I want to read it to you. Mark 10, 20 through verse 21. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said, one thing you lack Go and sell all you possess, give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven and come follow me. I love Mark's gospel because he says, I've kept all these things from my youth. Jesus looks him dead in the face and senses love before the challenge. And I think a lot of us, what we do is we think God is challenging us not from a place of love, but he's challenging from us from a place of his immense love towards us, but also his placement he has intended for us as well. What do I mean by placement? Look at that last line. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Many of you guys don't know this. This phrasing, this exact wording is used for all 12 of his disciples. In my opinion, what I, in my research, I can only find three other instances where Jesus walks up to somebody and personally, in front of them, says, You can come follow me. He's got his 12 disciples. He's got these three instances. He has this man right here. See, a lot of us were like, Okay, well, how can the rich enter the kingdom of heaven? You, we think this is a reprimand. No, this is an invitation. The man asks, how do I have everlasting life? And Jesus offers it. He literally looks him right in the face and says, dude, just sell and come. You're with me. See, a lot of us, we're reading this and we're like, oh man, he asked him to sell everything. No, he invited him to follow him. See, we focus on the wrong stuff. Oh God, like, well, he's got to sell everything. Do you realize what he got invited into? Do you think he's more remembered for his riches back then? Or what he could have been following Jesus. What I'm saying is this. He loved him. Saw him and loved him. And then what he did is he took him and he said, come follow me. The same invitation to Peter, James, John. The same invitation to Judas. And Bartholomew. And Nathaniel. The same invitation to doubting Thomas. Thomas. This invitation, come and follow me in the midst of this man essentially saying, you're just a good teacher. I've got a lot of riches. Yeah, but I love you. Come follow. His most personal challenges to you is coming from love and your intended place of being a disciple. The last one is this. What you're willing to leave behind or sacrifice shows more about where your riches are than anything else. Which kingdom are you building? His or yours? You know, in all honesty, um, the last little bit that I haven't talked about in Luke is this passage of scripture right after the rich young ruler And a lot of us, for context's sake, I've heard a lot of people speak on the rich young ruler and not, and by not, nobody speak on the context of the next two verses, the next two passages. So remember, right, the third one I jumped way ahead was blind Bartimaeus and the titles that he used for Jesus, where essentially we've got the rich young ruler saying good teacher, and we got blind Bartimaeus saying son of David and then getting healing. The second one, though, is Peter. Verbally processing what the heck he's even saying. Luke 18, 26 to 30. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we have left our homes and followed you. Notice he didn't say we left all our money. We left our homes. We left our security and our stability and followed you. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, wife, brother, parent, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come. My closing thought is this. In my Bible, if you were to open it to Luke 18, you would see this passage highlighted and written right next to it, The Promise of Phoenix. Because I've lived this. If you don't know our story, we're supposed to take over a church in Michigan, came out here one weekend, and the Lord so grabbed a hold of our hearts to plant a church in downtown that we left our family, sold our house, moved here with just a few friends. And I've stood every day on this reality of, God, I've left it. I better receive that many times as much. See, isn't it interesting that, now I do believe there are elements of prosperity gospel that are completely wrong and poisonous to the nature of our faith. But I see passages like this of faith and radical obedience in which God says, you'll receive many more in this life and the life to come. And this, this talk wasn't designed for us to take up an offering right now. This talk was not designed for me to challenge and inspire you to financially do things. This talk is because today, the Lord of this world is money. And any time we can look at the Lord of this world and say, we serve the King of Kings, we give room for faith to meet us. And I want to challenge you in closing, are there things currently you are being asked to sacrifice? Are there things currently you're being asked to leave behind? This is the greatest symbol of devotion we can walk out. Do we trust in a God who will make it worth it? Who will make it complete? Who can make our lives able to receive many more in this life or the life to come? Let's stand to our feet. I'm just going to pray over all of us. If you know the habit we have here, it's just, I kind of summarize the sermon in a prayer and read it over everybody. So whatever your posture for receiving is, let's just take a moment and let these words meet us where we are. Father, today, you have permission to show us where our treasure is. To realign us to kingdom mentality in which we live on earth. But our treasure is in you. May it never be said of us that our success, status, or gifting excused us from a life of full devotion and being wholehearted. May your title in our life be much more than good teacher. And may we always view the personal challenges you put before us through the lens of both love and of placement. We are willing. Willing to be refined to a purity of living that seeks you, knows you, and walks with you. We are willing to sacrifice and to leave behind, if necessary, anything that pulls the treasure we have in you and tries to place it. Oh, God, we are willing to be the one who doesn't just know we have an invitation to follow, but takes seriously the calling to follow in every place our bodies are found or pavement our feet should walk on. Oh, God, would we be the people who experienced the many times over blessing because we walked out the sacrifice of obedience and passed the test of where our treasures are found our lives be only for you, only to you, only upon you. Oh God, would you trust us with the ability to rule and reign in today's world and know our treasure will only ever be found in you.